Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, the Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute, and the TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein and I and our guests discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. MCTs are teams of 4 to 12 people, indigenously trained, that solve rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets, and who work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of mission-critical teams, and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here, and once again, enjoy the TeamCast. Today I speak with Justin Langer, the head coach of the 143-year-old Australian men's national cricket team, the number one ranked cricket team in the world in test format cricket, in the world's second most popular sport, which has 2.5 billion fans across 180 countries. Justin took the helm of the team after the team was involved in a ball tampering scandal in early 2018 while playing a test match against South Africa. JL, as people call him, took over after the scandal where two star players were suspended, as they should be, and the entire organization was reeling from the incident. As Justin shares with us in this conversation, the national team fans, which is the entire country of Australia, were furious, and the team was essentially disgraced. Preston and I met Justin at a collaboration of other pro sports teams and at a dinner in Florida, coincidentally a couple of weeks after he took the head coaching job, although we didn't know about the scandal and the chaos at the time. He didn't mention anything about that. We just knew that Justin and his staff we're over to the U.S. to collaborate with other professional sports and other types of teams and organizations about leadership and culture and dealing in a crisis and, and leading elite teams and high-performance organizations. It was essentially a, a learning trip for them. I reached out to JL just after we all went into coronavirus quarantine because as I was flicking through some movie and show trailers to binge, as I do from time to time, I was on Amazon Prime and saw a documentary called The Test. Thinking it might be interesting, I played the trailer and there was Justin. And I quickly connected the dots that if we were in 2020 and I had met him two years ago, and this was a documentary about a team that was essentially a turnaround, well, not really a turnaround, but given that we were in 2020 and I met Justin in 2018, I quickly connected the dots that Justin must have just been taking over the team when we met. And of course, I did binge the eight episodes about the Australians, the Australian men's uh, national team battling back from over the last two years to once again become the world number one in test cricket. Uh, a couple of notes here about cricket in general, uh, none of which I knew before watching the documentary and talking in more detail with Justin and, and Harry Moffat, one of our teammates who many of you know. For those who have and, and I'm completely talking out of turn here, but for those of you who have never seen cricket, I embarrassingly joked because I didn't know any better with JL in our conversation about how I thought cricket was just a bunch of guys walking around what looks like a baseball field wearing sweater vests and dress pants. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth in terms of test cricket, and uh, I was completely wrong. 
after watching the documentary, I got a sense of how serious the game was, as all games at that level are, uh, but also how difficult uh, test cricket was. The test, uh, the documentary, the test is named that way because the feature game in international cricket is test cricket, which uh, is a game where two teams of 11 players each play a match which can last up to five days or longer. And after those five days, matches can still just come to a tie or a draw. There are two other formats called One Day International and T20. Uh, but you can hear in my conversation with Justin that what he loves and all cricket players dream of playing, at least in the case of the Australian team, is uh, they dream of playing test cricket because of its long duration effort punctuated by very intense periods of play and, of course, a requirement for long duration concentration. You'll also see in the documentary that the ball that's bold in cricket can break a man's arm or knock somebody out if you're hitting the head. In the conversation, Justin and I talk about, as usual, all sorts of things, but here's a primer. You'll hear in Justin's voice how he loves cricket, particularly test cricket. We talked about Justin's quote room. We discuss how most people want to uh, live the dream, but they can't live the reality. We discuss living and dying by mateship, the team's trip to the Western Front, the difference between abuse and banter, we talked about Justin's mentors, the decision we often have to make between giving up or getting better. We talked about the power of rituals and symbols, in particular, in particular, the baggy green cap of the Australian men's national cricket team, affectionately called the baggy green, and what that means to players. We talked about staying ready so you don't have to get ready, leading up from rock bottom, Talk about JL sitting at the Fremantle markets with his daughter and being not heckled but questioned by common citizens on the street on what the heck is happening to the Australian cricket team. We talk about earning back respect, being a good storyteller and why that matters to leadership. We talk about, as Justin says, the thing about values is, and then he goes on to preach about how values are nothing if we don't live them every day. We talk about the Australian men's national cricket team values, which are elite honesty, elite learning, elite mateship, elite professionalism, and elite humility, and that the number one thing Justin wanted the team to do was make Australians proud. He just wanted the team to make Australians proud. We talked about Justin's wake-up call and what it took for him to notice that he had to become a better coach and a better person. We talk about the pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment, the power of language, and if you preach excellence and walk mediocrity, you're nothing but a common liar. One of Justin's favorite quotes, if you preach excellence and walk mediocrity, you're nothing but a common liar. This conversation to me was a masterclass in loving a game, in loving a way of life, in loving your teammates leading through a chaotic situation, sticking to a team's values, and understanding how what's beneath the things we do, the core of the reason we do the things we do, are so much bigger than what we're actually doing. And as always, Justin, thanks again for taking the time to do this. All the best to you and your team 
and every single Australian fan to whom you clearly have to answer to. And without further delay, enjoy my conversation with Justin Langer. Let's start with this, Jay. I mean, one thing we didn't get to in the conversation two weeks ago with a larger group, which I would like to spend, you know, five or 10 minutes talking about here before we, before we get to the Cape Town situation, you taking over as the head coach, the, the documentary, the test, which obviously I'm going to put in the show notes and I'll talk about a lot here so that people go watch it, but is to get your background. When did you start playing cricket? I know how much cricket means to you and other people in Australia, but personally, your journey through your playing days, JL, and then up to, you know, to get us up to now. Yeah, sure. Well, in, in Australia, cricket is literally like, I imagine baseball or basketball or football in uh, or gridiron, what do you call it? NFL gridiron? Yep, yep. Yeah, so it's like in Australia, cricket, when you're a little kid, you either play cricket in the summer or Australian rules football or rugby in the winter. That's just how we were brought up. And my gosh, cricket for me. Whew. I love cricket. I love cricket. Since I was a little boy and my dad used to play and my uncle, my actually my uncle played cricket for Australia as well. Um, very, very small period of time. But so he was like my hero growing up. So I used to hear from my uncle. I used to hear the stories of playing domestic cricket for Western Australia or playing for Australia. And um, so I used to hear it. And I was to watch it on TV, obviously. You know, back when I was a kid, it was black and white TV and used yeah, to watch yeah. Australia versus England in England. And used to wake up, like waking up to watch Wimbledon. You had to wake up in the middle of the night and watch the cricket. Uh, so I grew up and then we have, well, we played backyard cricket. So I had two brothers, a sister, and then all the kids in the neighbourhood had come and they played backyard cricket. So we just played cricket all summer. It was, uh, it was amazing. And then... As I progressed through, uh, I had some really good coaches along the way and played junior cricket. And then you progress through and then I played some school cricket. And then it got to a point I went to the Cricket Academy, which is like a, um, it's a, 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 probably 14 kids from all around Australia get to go to the Cricket Academy. And uh, so that was the start of the journey. And then I, was started, I played what we call first class cricket. So I played for my state, Western Australia. And I did that for two years. I started quite young there. And then I was selected to play for Australia. In 1993, I was selected to play for Australia for the first time. And in that test match, we played against the West Indies. The West Indies, the, back then, the mighty West Indies. It's like playing the Chicago Bulls in that Jordan era. You know, these guys were big, strong athletes and they bowl fast. Like, these guys are like, whoo. This is, they're just, the West Indian fast bowlers, if you say, even say that in the, when you talk cricket, everyone gets nervous, right? So in 93, I took on the West Indies for the first time as a 22-year-old youngster. Uh, and then I progressed through all the way through. I got dropped a few times. I learned, interestingly, I remember learning from the SAS soldiers, right, over here. A good friend of mine in the SAS, he always said, to me, and I remember it sort of tattooed into my brain. Most, and I actually told my daughter this story yesterday. Most people can live the dream, but not many people can live the reality. In other words, a lot of people want the dream of wearing a, ba a baggy green cap and playing for Australia. They can't live the reality of that. And then 
mostly want a green beret and be an SAS soldier. But not many people can live the reality of that. A lot of young men would think they want to be a, a Navy SEAL, but they can't live the reality of what it means to do that. Or, or some people want to own a brand new Mercedes Benz, but they can't live the reality of what it takes. Or some people want to be a, the CEO of a um, or the president of a company, but they can't live the reality. So the, what, the reason I say that is because all of a sudden, as a 22-year-old kid, I get this, I'm playing for Australia. This is the dream. Is this your debut match in 93, Joe? This is 93 debut match for Australia. Yeah, yeah. But then the reality of that, I'm facing the West Indies and it's fast. I'm getting hit all over the body. My very <laughs> first ball, my very, very first ball in test cricket, I got hit in the back of the helmet and nearly got knocked out. So this is the reality. And then I had to learn that. And the reason I say that as well is that you live the dream, but then the dream, the reality becomes, wow, this is hard, right? This is really hard. This is tough going. And you have your ups and your downs. It's the roller coaster. You get dropped a few times and you've got to fight back. What do you do? You give up or you get better. You give up or you get better. Your choice. And I decide to, to keep trying to get better. And at the end of it, I played. I ended up playing 100 test matches for Australia. There's only 10 people ever who's done have done that in the history of the game. And interestingly, I, I retired in, uh, that was in 1993. I retired in 2006. Okay, I retired okay. with two all-time great players the same day, a guy called Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath. They are literally like the Tom Brady and the... Um, Oh, and the Michael Jordan, literally the two all-time great players. And I retired on the same day. They were my two teammates and my two brothers. And what was also amazing was the, the moment I retired, finished from playing the dream, I was actually out in the middle when there was myself and a guy called Matthew Hayden who were like this partnership, right? Everyone remembers it as this opening partnership. And we were batting together when we hit the winning run to beat England. So Australia versus England, my <laughs> That's like, whoo, that is the big rivalry in our sport. And I was, was out this there. the Ashes or was this a separate game? No, no, no. This is the Ashes. Okay. And I retired on with the two legends, the Michael Jordan, the Tom yeah. Brady. And I was out there to hit the winning run Get out of with here, my man. great mate. And we beat England in that series 5-0 in the Ashes. So it was the Cinderella. I could not have had... It, 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 you literally couldn't have had a better ending to a career. So from that point of view, I was very lucky to play for so long and to play cricket all around the world and to play with some of the all-time great players. Uh, you know, I was, very, I was very, very lucky in my playing career. I think I, think I shared this. Well, I know for sure I shared this with you in 2018 at, at dinner down in Florida, Jay. I don't, I don't know if you remember. But I was in Sydney. You said you boys... Uh, were the Michael Jordan and the Tom Brady. I was in Sydney in December of, um, wow, two, no, two, 2000 or 2001. I have to think about that. We were downtown in a bar with some Australian SAS guys. We were, I was still in the teams. We were doing a um, an exchange thing. And someone was in that bar, and, I, and I'm – Almost certain it was you because at dinner we kind of batted around this idea at, at dinner in 2018. But anyway, either you or, or one of your mates walked in and, and the guys we were with, they said, see that guy over there? That's the Michael Jordan of Australian cricket. 
in America, that guy, if he was Jordan, there's no way he could walk in here. And the soldier was just making a point actually about how humble and controlled in a way Australia was in terms of like they didn't mob their their athletes. So it was probably either you or it was or it was not me. I I was not the Michael Jordan. It would have been (laughs) Shane Warne or Glenn McGrath or Ricky Ponting. But that's so true. You know, that's one of the we're very accessible. You know, in Australia our athletes are very accessible. You know, it's so funny. Like my kids, I walk down the street and someone will go, Hey JL, hey JL and my kids will go Who's that dad? I go, I've got no idea. <laughs> I've got no idea. They just call me JL now, right? So, but our athletes over here, as a rule, are very accessible. And that's one of the beautiful things about uh, being a sportsman over here that, that you know, that, that, that yeah, people love yeah, this. Yeah. Like in America, I love their sportsmen over here. Yeah, yeah. So before we get, again, I, I, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, JL, obviously. But in 93, um, I want to talk about rites of passage as we did a couple of weeks ago in the conversation and the importance of ceremonies like your debut and getting your baggy green cap. But, but can you talk about who and, and what the ceremony was like for you when you debuted, who gave you your baggy green? Well, it's so funny because, and, and I'm sure people will identify with this back then things are very different to today. So in other words, Mate, the, our captain, but there's a guy called Alan Border. He is the toughest, hardest man in the world. <laughs> he never talked to me. He never talked to me as a youngster. No, no. We just, he just, we just learned by watching what he did. And a guy by the name of David Boone, he had a big moustache, right? And hard, tough men. These are hard, tough men. So no one, I, I got my, I arrived. This is true, right? I arrived the day before. See, I, got selected, and this happens a lot in life, right? If you've got to stay, Will Smith, the great actor, a great American, always, and this is one of the themes in the Australian cricket team now. you always got to stay ready, so you're never going to get ready, right? You've got to stay ready, so you don't have to get ready. So as it turned out, one of our, one of our players, who's a great friend, got poked in the eye at training and couldn't play the game. And I had to fly from Perth to Adelaide within within 24 hours to play the next day to make my debut. This is like a big deal, right? But anyway, I walked into the into the hotel where we were staying, and back then in 93, I walked into the bar, and there all, all my teammates are sitting at the bar having a beer the night before the test match, right? And these are hard men. like These are like, whoa. They were my heroes, and I went and introduced myself, and I yeah, and they sort of gave me a nod and a pat on the, on the shoulder. These days, I say, you walk in the night before a test match and they're all meditating and yeah, spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all polishing their diamond earrings and, and shaving their legs and putting Botox in their forehead. <laughs> Change, right? From the, from the back then to now, things have changed. Zampa and, and Stoinis are making coffee. Oh, man, hugging each other and making <laughs> coffee and all sorts of shit. So anyway, so then I go up to my room and, and I tell the story, there's a big cardboard box on my bed and it had Justin Langer, Australian Test Cricket, written on top of this box. And this is like, whoa. And I pulled open the box. And there was no ceremony back then. I'm pulling out, like, tracksuits and clothes and sunglasses, all this sort of shit you get given when you play for Australia. And there at the bottom, there's this thing called a baggy green cap. And, Coleman, the baggy green cap in Australia is like, oh, my God, this is a revered symbol. And so I took it out and I put it on my head. And I'm walking around my hotel room playing all these fancy shots. Thinking this is my baggy green cap. Oh, I've always and now it's not a baggy green cap 
or the baggy green cat. This is my baggy green cat, right? And I've got it on my head. I probably slept in it that night, you know. Yep. So, yeah, but there's no ceremony. But now, no ceremony. You fast forward today, and now um, it's a really big deal. So we'll get a, a past player to come in, and we'll and present the cap. Like a past a past legend of the game will come and present it to the kid making his debut. And mate, and some of the speeches you hear, wow, it is so moving. It's awesome. So this is how things progress. But, but back then, there's no ceremony, baby. Like it was like. Alan Boyer, there's no tears or no no nice no, no, no. <laughs> You've been selected, son. There you go and do your job. I went, okay, no stress. But so I, I learned from the the hard school to the school now, and you know it's a nice mix. We get a nice mix now. Yeah, that's great. I thought that, um, and, and again, people people need to go watch the documentary, the test. And um, I thought Nathan Lyon's presentation to to Travis Head, I think. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, for the for his bag of green was one of the most powerful moments of of all the episodes, you know, that 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 they filmed of you guys. It just it says a lot about uh who Nathan Lyon is. Obviously don't know him, and, and it says a lot about the culture of where the team wanted to go because I know they were dealing with a crisis at the time and you guys were I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but it, it seemed to be a rebuilding period. You know, but the team was desperate to move on and, and recapture the spirit that, that, that is there. Not definitely. One of the things that I've learned about building great teams, particularly under pressure, is that we have, you call it like the, um, the master and the apprentice or big brother, little brother. And that's why these things are really important. So when I was a young player, we had some, I talk about Alan Border and David Boone, Steve Boy, they're like my, they are the master and I'm the apprentice and I learned from watching them in action. And, and it's like really powerful, right? It's really powerful. And when you saw Nathan Lyon presenting to Travis, what people don't realize is that he was like, no, Travis Head's big br- little brother, big brother, little brother. So when he, and when, when I spoke to Nathan Lyon the day, the night before about being the person to present the cat, he got more nervous about that than playing the test match. I believe it. Because what I'm going to say, like, this is so important. This is such a big moment for, for him as the master or the big brother presenting to his little brother or the, the apprentice. My gosh, this is a big moment. So, and I love that sort of thing. I always believe under pressure, the camaraderie that you can build is like the glue that keeps everything together. Yeah. If you have that camaraderie and that big brother, little brother, or that friendship, that mateship, you have that. It's, it's the glue that keeps it, particularly when you're under, because you've got each other's back, right? And I say it's a bit like if you're seeing your little brother getting in a punch-up in the schoolyard, you jump in and you help your little brother, right? But if it's someone who you're not so sure about, you let it, you just sit back and you let him get a bit of a touch-up because you're not so sure. But if you can build that camaraderie and that brotherhood within the, within the team, my gosh, it's so powerful. And, and I say to this day, the guys I played with, Guys that a lot of people on this this podcast, their names, but they are literally like my brothers. Oh yeah, no, no. Everybody on this on this will 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 appreciate that. That's right. You guys all understand as they're like because I spend more time with these guys, my teammates, than I did with my blood brothers. Yeah, I love, I love my brothers Adam and Jonathan. I love my brothers, but I love my other brothers who are not a blood. I love them just as much because I spend my whole and I went into battle with them and I live with them and we. You know, we, they are literally like my brothers. And you guys on this call, on this podcast will understand what I'm saying. And it's powerful, right? 
Yeah. It's, a, it's actually a great thing about life that you have these brotherhoods and these friendships, which will be there till the till till the day we die, right? Absolutely. I was um I was talking to Harry Moffat, who I don't know if you had a chance to meet yet, Jail, but he lives he lives in Melbourne, former SASR guy, and just yesterday, and I mentioned this on the group call we did two weeks ago, but so everyone on the team cast on, on this episode hears it. My confession about cricket, I had seen a couple of like bits of cricket on TV when I was deployed various different places and, you know, watched the rugby sevens and all the stuff overseas when I was hanging out with guys in the, you know, in the NATO community. And, and because we met you, I can't even remember who told me, Jay, it's like, Hey, there's a, there's a, uh, um, there's a documentary on the Australian test cricket team and, you know, JL's the new coach and all this stuff. So as you know, but I want the audience to hear it, I burned through the eight episodes in no time. And, and here's one of the things that completely took me by surprise. And one of the big reasons I wanted to do this interview with you in this way so we could talk about a lot of different things that I think are very, very relevant to mission critical teams. And this was the surprise for me. I had absolutely no idea about the long duration effort of test cricket and the intensity, the periods of intensity that come with it, the strain on the bowlers, the amount of time a batsman is out there, the decisions that have to be made without the coach standing next to him, guys getting their arms broken because a ball is going so fast. Man, honestly, Jay, I was watching the thing thinking, I thought this was a game of pansies wearing like sweater vests. And I say that in the in in with obviously the utmost respect and like I couldn't believe how hard the game looked. And so as as we as you know the mission critical team just groups in general, I just started texting this to everybody like you have to watch the test, you have to watch the test for these reasons and because I think there's so much relevance to our jobs because we do long duration effort we have short spurts of tactical decisions. We do not have a coach with us. You know, you're up in the box, you know, sweating bullets, and all the team has to make their own decisions. And so the, the first thing, the very first thing I wanted you to talk about in terms of people can go watch a documentary, obviously, is when you took over the job as head coach, did, because of the situation the team was in, did you find yourself doing anything or, or, or planning to do anything different as the new coach that, that you wouldn't have done otherwise. Meaning like, holy crap, this is a whole different situation that I have to address. And if you could just riff on that, because many leaders in the teams that we work with, they find themselves in a situation where it's, holy shit, this is not what I expected. Mm. Well, I definitely felt that when I came into it. <laughs> Even though, I well, no, oh, honestly, I, and we'll talk about that. But yeah. first thing I'll say is the documentary is called The Test, right? And in that game, that long game, which I, which I played most of, is called Test Cricket. Right. That's what it's called. It's called Test Cricket. And, and that's five days. That's a five-day game. And at the end of it, there still might not be a winner. But the interesting thing is at the end of five days, sometimes when it's a drawn game, they're the best games. Because it's like literally a tug-of-war for five days. So it's physically, it's mentally draining. And we're in the field for six hours. So five days of six or six and a half to seven hours, right? So we're out in the field and the concentration for a batsman, you imagine, you imagine being a ba- uh, baseball hitter 
And sometimes you've got to stand out there for six hours and, and face, I don't know, 200 pitches, 200 balls from, and the ball that bounced on the ground and the, the um, decision-making, the decision-making over and over and over and over again. And that's why concentration. At the end of my career, I was much more fascinated in how the human mind worked and, and mastering concentration than I was with the shots I had to play. Right. It's like, I imagine it's like guys shooting a rifle. You learn how to, the mechanics of shooting a rifle and then you're going to work out how to be able to hit the target over and over and that's concentration and, and relaxing your body and all everything that goes with it. I say, so that's why it's called test cricket because, and our bowlers, is there's nothing more physically demanding. And these, these guys cover like 22 kilometres every day, running in, bowling and it's hard on their bodies and it's you know we play in india and we play uh, all around in australia in the summer like it can be 40 degrees uh celsius, celsius. Yeah. Yeah. bloody hot so um that's why it's called test cricket and that's why we love it that's why we love test cricket because it's bloody hard and it's <laughs> and that's the test that's the test test of the best players and the best concentration the most physically fit that's endurance right and uh so that's why we love test cricket now we get back to when I took over. See what happens in leadership generally, as I understand, is most leaders come in and it's crisis management. And when you talk about holy shit moments, like in my case, I would have hated to. I wouldn't have taken over the job if we were winning all the time. You wouldn't have. Well, I, I might have taken the job, but then it's a whole different ball Situation. game, right? Yeah, you're, yeah. Almost on a, you're almost on a hiding to nothing. You take over from a coach who's winning all the time. You can only go down. You can only go down, right? <laughs> Whereas in our case, we were literally rock bottom. And to try and put this in perspective, what the Australian cricket team means to the Australian public. So, so the guys and girls listening on this podcast, this is – so every Sunday morning for the last five years, I go to the Fremantle markets, right? So you guys have got markets over there or you go to your favourite cafe or your coffee shop or whatever. And every I go with my second daughter, my hippie daughter, Ali Rose, right? And every, every Sunday when I'm in Australia, we go to the markets. And I've been doing it for five years. And I go and put my cap on, put my sunnies on, drink my coffee, eat my gozlamay, talk shit with my daughter. That's what, It's our date. It's our date every Sunday, right? And no, Everyone says hello, but no one says anything. They just let us do it, go about our business. Yep. The day after this crisis that happened in South Africa where the Australian cricket team cheated, I go down to the markets with my daughter and, oh, my gosh, I had 30 people, people coming from everywhere, like bees to honey, bees to honey going, what has happened? And people are crying. Oh. They're angry. They're going, what has gone on with our Australian cricket team? I went, I said, and I, as a pastor, I was so angry as well. So I understood their emotions. Yep. And then the next day, the next day, so it was on the Monday, I went to this big construction site. The, one of the football teams I'm involved with are building this big new building. And I went and put my hard hat on and put my steel cap boots on. I'm going to look at this new construction. And there's about 300 Australian men, big, strong bastards, and they're working out their hard hats. They've got the high-vis shirts on. They're pushing their wheelbarrows. They're holding their hammers and they're, they're and they're going, and they come up there and they're angry. What has gone on? What, is, what have they done to the Australian cricket team? I'm just going, man, I know, it's horrible. And it might give you a sense of what it meant. The Australia, Australia was in mourning. Yeah. 
So you imagine the team. The team are now the enemies of the of the whole country. So I tell you, and then the the the, the coach resigns. The captain and the vice captain were, were suspended for twelve months. And then our uh, what we call our chairman and our CEO and our high performance manager, they all finished within those. So mate, we are in crisis mode, and uh, and then that's the time I took over. So. Yeah, I had no idea I was getting myself into the intensity of the uh, poison which was coming from the Australian public, from the media, and from our rivals in different parts of the country who are finally, because we've been a really dominant force in cricket for a long time, yeah. and they're all like, like yes, and they're mocking us going, so da 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 and you know, there are people are down, you get kicked when you're down, and my gosh, Colin, we were getting kicked. We're having... <laughs> we're having we're having poison and fire tipped all over us. So it was a tough time. Yeah. Did, um, so whatever day one on the job was, JL, what was the conversation in your head the night before showing up to day one as the new coach? Yeah, I was nervous, but I was very clear. So you remember, we talked about this very start of this podcast, I love Australian cricket. Yeah. And what people remember is that it wasn't just that one incident. Probably a year before, we'd been uh, the Australian cricket and behaviours on and off the field. Mm-hmm. You know, people were starting to, you know, they were become the team, rightly or wrongly, had become a, quite an unpopular team. Mm-hmm. You know, and our, our guys play. Last year, I was away 300 days of the year. Our guys play all year round. It's not like seasons. We have yeah. no season. Our season, because we play. In England, in, we, last year we were in England for four and a half months playing two different tournaments, the Ashes and the World Cup, which yep. never happens. We were in England for four and a half months. Then we come back and play our season. So a lot of our guys were exhausted physically and mentally. They're playing 12 months. They're not seeing their families. They start making mistakes, right? Um, so I knew, I was, very, I was crystal clear what we had to do. And I'd lived through it. I'd, I'd lived an apprenticeship when I was head coach of my state for mm. seven years before. And yeah, I yeah. took over then in crisis mode as well. So I was glad I'd, I'd, I'd glad I'd lived that apprenticeship. So the night before I was crystal clear. I was very nervous. I got to go in front of these guys, superstars, right? Yep. And I just told them how it was. And how was it? Well, this is how we're going to go about it. I said, our, our objective is to earn back respect. Yeah. We're going to earn back respect, earn back respect from the Australian public. We're going to earn back respect from our from um, our people from internationals, from people around the world who think we're rubbish, who hate us. Earn back respect. We're going to earn back respect from the public. We're going to earn back respect for each other. We're going to earn back respect. We're going to earn back respect from everyone in Australian cricket. And this is how we're going to do it. We're not going to talk about being the number one playing team in the world. We're going to be the number one in these values. We're going to be the number one team in professionalism. We're going to be the number one team in honesty. We're going to be the number one team in mateship, like we just talked about before, the importance that we're going to be the number one team in learning because I've been taught every day since I'm a young Australian, as long as you wake up every day looking to get better, you and we can get better. So we're going to be the number one team in learning and we're going to be the number one team in humility. And we're going to develop not only great cricketers, but we're going to develop great people. And they were what we talked about. And that the earning respect then to these three words 
which I've said almost every day for the last two years. And, and, and interesting it became from that tour when we come to America, Coleman, these yep. three words, make Australians proud. Yep. Make Australians proud. So it turned into our our goal, our vision, our objective, our higher purpose is make Australians proud. And we're going to do it through our values. And what's most interesting is over two years, we've become the most likable team in Australian sport. And this is the clincher. We're also the number one ranked team in test cricket and T20 cricket. But not once have we talked about that outcome. We've talked about make Australians proud of us. Yeah. And so we've got both. We've got the made Australians proud of us. We've earned respect back from the countries around the world, I hope. And we're also the best cricket team in the world. What were any of your superstars, because I do want to talk about leading superstars, I found uh, the the conversations that, at least through the test, because I don't know the players, right, conversations with uh, Usman Kawaja and Pat Cummings and, and Tim Payne and some of the things that were shown in your after-action review sessions and team sessions, um, that there was, and I'm, there's always tension in a really high-performing team that high-performing superstars want to, do stuff their way because they got a place a certain way and they should be allowed to, to, to do a certain amount of things a certain way. And, and clearly jail, any head coach, any staff feels like they need to influence the process and as the coaches, they should. And so initially did, did you have any, was there any tension between the direction you wanted to go and and the players that were there? Well, well, to a degree, but see, we'd hit such rock bottom only, and, and I knew I had a lot of rope because all of Australia yeah. wanted, wanted us to fix it. The, the Australian Cricket Board wanted me to fix it or wanted us to fix it, right? Yeah. So I had a lot of rope. Um, and But what I've learned is that, see, one of the important things about leadership, in my opinion, is being a good storyteller. Yeah. You've got to be very clear. So And, and that comes through one of the things I talk about is honest conversation. So. There was some tension, but when you explain it to the leaders of the group and the superstars, they go, oh, well, I imagine it's like Phil Jackson explaining to Michael Jordan, well, you, you might not get 60 points a game, but the reason we do it is because, and Michael Jordan eventually goes, yeah, okay, yeah, cool, I get it, I get it, coach. And then for, and guess what happens? And they go on and they have an extraordinary era of basketball, and, and that's what we're, you have honest conversation, you sell it to the group, because the senior players and the superstars are so important. It doesn't work unless, right, and right. I found if you sit down and have treat them like adults and you have adult conversations, all of a sudden you go, they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, awesome. Let's go. And then it's powerful. You're all going in the same direction, right? Yep. Leading the ship in the same direction. And that's, my gosh, it's so powerful. And, yeah, we have some tensions, but I love that. Yeah, that's good. You've got to have honest conversations. and. Honest conversations, sometimes they can be confronting, but that's okay. That's good. Mm. And I want, I want our players not to say, and then my staff to go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever you say, boss. No, that's bullshit. I don't yeah. want them to say that. I, if, if it's not right, I don't agree. As long as we do it both in a respectful way and we, we treat each other with, with integrity and respect, no stress. Yeah. What I don't like is when some, you, got, you know, you've got some athletes and we all know them, if something's black, they'll argue it's white just for the sake of arguing. <laughs> right? That's bullshit. I, I'm not into that crap. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to have a serious, honest conversation with me and we sit down together and then we all move in, awesome, baby, let's bring it on. We're not going to 
in fact, I've said this for many years, that my greatest mentors in life are the ones that have been absolutely, and, and the toughest on yeah, me, right? Absolutely. But this is the other part of that. Those guys are still the, my closest friends in my, in yeah. my life. And some of the guys in the cricket team, some of the, I've been really tough on them, but they're, I'm also have the closest relationships with them. Yeah. And they, they've come back to me at times and they, I expect them to be honest with me. And we have some really hard times, but they're the guys I'm closest with. Yeah. And they're yeah. the most important people, right? Because you can have, there's no bullshit. There's no, I'll just argue for the sake of it being a petulant little child. No, no, let's have, let's just have honest conversations. Let's just yeah. talk this through. And then usually that works things out pretty well. Yeah. We're, you know, as you know, Joe, we're just in our life experiences, all of us, including you and, you know, particularly our community, because we get to see, at least with the MCT, MCTI community, we get to see lots of different teams. And every different team has a different style of, let's call it, honest conversation, collective conversation, after action review, pre-planning, whatever it is, right? This this team room concept. And, and frankly, having seen enough of them at this point, some teams are just better than others. Like they've developed the muscle to have everybody in the room talking about the important issues. And I wanted you to talk about your guys' process a little bit more because what struck me watching the documentary was how many different forums you had strategic, operational, tactical conversations with. You're in the room, your whole staff is in the room, and all the players in the room. Lots of times, not teams aren't always set up to where the most junior player or the debut player, I know he's not going to be the loudest voice, but even the players really aren't there to challenge the head coach in the open and, and, and it's encouraged. And it seems like you guys encourage that collective, you know, conversation. Well, uh, see, this is the thing about values, right? Unless you live them, they're like toilet paper. <laughs> No, they are, mate. Yeah. I, I live truthfully, and a lot of people listening to this, for all those years as an athlete, I'd be going every pre-season, we'd sit around and we'd talk about the values and we'd come up with mission statements yeah. or, or visions and we'd come up with the values and everyone feels all happy and you're tickling each other's nuts and it's all happy and it's all friendly and, oh, yeah, we all feel good and we walk out of the room and no one leaves it. No one leaves it. So it actually means shit. It means it's no, it's no good. It's no good. It's like toilet paper. And you can have the fanciest posters all around the walls and you can have them on your desk. You can tattle them on your flipping arm if you want. But unless you live it, they don't mean nothing. They, don't, they mean nothing, right? So if one of our values is elite honesty. If we don't have honesty, they don't mean anything, right? <laughs> so we, but the other thing is everyone goes, yeah, every human being will say... <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, we're honest. Yeah. But that's not what happens, right? You've right. actually got to learn. You've got to learn how to have honest conversations. And the only way you get better at it was doing it more. So we have to encourage it. And I'll often say, boys, speak up. Please, yeah. come on. Let's talk about it. The main point there is that it's no point having the value or having the behavior on a bit of paper and, oh, yeah, that sounds all nice and rainbows and butterflies. It means shit unless you live it. So that's why we try and encourage it. Yeah, it's yeah. like feedback. I, uh, it's like feedback. People say, you get feedback. How do you deal with feedback? As the leader of the group or one of the leaders of the group, I can't be saying, 
I want to give you feedback, but I won't take it myself. Right, right, right. There's an old, there's an older in, in the theme of what we're talking about in the last minute. There's an old saying, if you preach excellence, but you walk mediocrity, you're nothing but a common liar, right? Oh. So, so, so as the leaders, you've got to walk the talk every day. Otherwise, people smell bullshit a mile away, right? Absolutely. Everyone smells it. So people smell it a mile away. So therefore, as leaders, which we all are on this call, you've got to walk it every single day. And if you want to have values, awesome. But lead it and live it. Don't just put a fancy stuff Banner. up on the walls. Yeah. yeah, banners. Banners mean shit. And I love what you guys did, Jill. I think in developing any of our teams internally, not just a coach to a player, even peers, you guys have elite honesty, elite learning, elite mateship, elite humility, elite professionalism. And every single one of those categories has a, what I would consider is like an initiating encouragement, right? Or it doesn't, you're not telling somebody what to do, but you are saying, Elite honesty is you look a person in the eye and tell them the truth, and you're brutally honest with yourself. And I think sometimes we can even we can even have the banner and have the values. And and, and look, we on on mission critical type teams, athletic teams, you do get young folks who are just looking left and right to see what right looks like, as we used to say. They're looking for the example. If they have a value that, that the team is living, and they also have an encouragement, an initial jumping off point, which I'm, I'm new. Um, God help us if I got you know the baggy green cap. But if I'm new to Australian test cricket team, I know that what, what the team expects of me is to look people in the eye, tell them the truth, and be honest with myself. And that, that gives me permission to do that with Tim Payne and Steve Smith and Finchie. And if, if truly elite teams can handle it from the lowest guy up to the most senior guy. Absolutely. But but again, I, I, I can't say strongly enough, these are something you've got to practice. And and human beings don't want, sorry, a lot of humans don't want to do that because it's hard. Yeah. So we've got to encourage that. And sometimes you've got to um, mediate that and help them have the, help, have the conversations because it's hard, right? As, as people, it's sometimes very, very hard to do that. So early, Jay, I want to I want to hear about um, maybe the Western Front, but you can tell us what the trip to the, or you can tell us what, you know, what moment or experience did you try to create in the early days of taking over the team to give them a chance off the cricket field to come together as a group? Yeah, well, when we started talking about the Make Australians Proud of Us, um, our, our team manager Gavin Dovey, he's a he's He's a ripping bloke and he thinks outside the box. Um, so what we on the way to England, we went with a very young group. This is at the when I first took over. We're going to England to play not test cricket, one day cricket. This is 2018. 2018. Yeah. I've be, been in the job for about, oh, I must have been a month. And we are, ta- or two months, and we are taking a very, we've got our captain and vice captain suspended. We've got our, some of our most senior bowlers injured and didn't come. So I'm basically taking these kids to take on England, who are then the number one team. They just won the World Cup a few months, or last this time last year. They had a, they had a spoke, my gosh. Anyway, but this is the start of the journey, right? And, and I realised that we had a young team, uh, very inexperienced, but we took them to the Western Front. And for us in our history and more is incredible. 
So we take, you imagine, we take 15 young Australian cricketers and our staff to the Western Front. And man, what an experience. Last year, we, uh, before we went to England, we took them to Gallipoli. Oh. And Gallipoli for us, because Anzac Day for us is like the, almost the number one day on our, of our calendar. Anzac Day, and it's huge over here now. The way people celebrate Anzac Day, with great respect. So we took to the Western Front. And for three days, we, we went and learned about the history of our soldiers and our Victoria Cross winners. And, man, it was so powerful. It was so – because it wasn't about cricket. We didn't even talk about cricket. Yep. We talked about Australia. We talked about our country, who we are representing. And one of the amazing things that happened – on the first day, I said to all our players, we, at the end of the day, we'd been travelling around and we'd been learning about our history and I got picked six of our players and we're all sitting at a big, long table so, and they were all having a beer and we said, okay, we picked six and we told them three hours before, I want you to stand up in front of the group and I want you to talk to them, tell us who your hero is in your life, whoever that is. I want you to tell you what you've learned today and what you love about being an Australian. So they all got up and they told it. And it was really moving. You know, someone talked about their father or their grandfather or a sports or whoever. And it was very moving. And we did that for the first two nights, had a beer. On the third night, we we're coming back in the team bus. And I said to um, our manager, Gavin Dovey, I said, oh, he said, who are you going to select tonight? I said, oh, well, uh, how about we go, da 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 six guys. He goes, okay. But tonight we're going to do it a little bit different. I said, what do you mean a little bit different? It's worked brilliantly the last two nights. He goes, <laughs> oh, I've just got something a bit different. And this Gavin Doe, he's a young guy, right? He's a, Gavin's uh, might, might just be, I don't know if he's 40 yet, but he's a young guy, right? Yeah. Anyway, this day we're all sitting around, we've got these big pots of beer, and we're just about to say, and I'm saying, and Gavin goes, and Gavin says, you've got to trust me. I said, no, okay, of course I trust you, man. I've known you a long time, no worries. So we're all sitting in a big circle in this hotel area, having a beer, and Gavin walks with his leather, leather bag. I'm going, what's going on here? And then he comes to all the players, gives them an envelope, gives every player and every staff member an envelope. And I look at this envelope, and it's my father's writing on it. You didn't know he did this? No idea. No idea. And he and I, he's like my right-hand man. I've got no idea. I've got a surprise for you. Okay, no stress. I thought he might be giving us a little... Western Front badge, all right? Yeah, 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 yeah. A sticker. <laughs> a sticker or something that we've been to the Western Front, right? So he hands me this letter, and every single person in the room hands them a letter. And I open up this letter, and first, and my mum had just passed away a little while before of ovarian cancer. Anyway, I open up this, this envelope, and there's a picture of my mum sitting on my lap with my old Australian cricket blazer on, right? I'm going, what's this? And then I open up this letter, from, and it's from my father telling me why he's proud of me for being an Australian cricketer. Oh, my God. Every single player, every, every player. single staff member, Gavin had gone to them in the lead-up to this and asked their parents to write their son a letter of why they're proud for their representing the country. Mate, you've got, you got growing men, tears pouring out of their eyes, right? Our captain, Aaron Finch, he goes... I want to talk first. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, whereas what? He goes, I come from a family where it's just not the done thing. We don't tell each other we love each other. You know, a lot of people will understand what I'm saying here. It's just not what we do. We love each other. We don't tell each other. 
this is the first time my mum and dad have told me they love me. And this, Get out of here, jail. Man, this is powerful shit, right? <laughs> and this is the start of our journey. And we went on to lose that first series 5-0 from England, our enemy, right? Our arch rival in cricket. And we're getting smashed. But you know what? It was so much bigger than that. Yeah. That was the start of our journey. And we then we went, did that. And then we got beaten, beaten up, beaten up, beaten up. We got stronger and tougher and tougher. And then we went to the Gallipoli last year, one of the great moments. Oh, my God. Me going to Gallipoli, Australian kid. Me going to 49 years old. <laughs> we were drinking a whiskey out of a hip flask at oh. 11 o'clock in the morning at Lone Pine, which is very famous in our history. Lone Pine. I was with five of my mates drinking a hip flask of whiskey. Because, and I don't even drink whiskey, right? But just so I can yeah. tell all my mates that I have drank whiskey at 11 o'clock at Lone Pine. I rolled a cigarette. I smoked cigarettes. I rolled a cigarette and smoked a cigarette at Anzac Cove because that's what the old diggers did. And I smoked a cigarette by myself. No one around because that's oh, what the Anzacs did, right? Oh, man. You talk about growing. And that's what we talk about. Great cricketers, great people. And understand it's more than a game. It's more than the game. It's not just the game of cricket. This is life. This is building while we're so proud. And if you're proud of what you're representing, whether it's your family or your grandparents or your country or the baggy green cap or the green beret, if you're proud of that, man, you're going to run through brick walls, right? It, it takes it to a whole new level. That's what we've done, we're doing and done in the Australian cricket team. I love it, Jail. The, the, the rituals and the, the symbols or the totems and the things that we, you know, wear and the patches and, again, the baggy greens and things. I, I was... I was this this team cast will air after another episode uh, episode uh, did with a um, a teammate of ours called Claire Murphy who is a professional storyteller and, and 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 theater person right this is what she does but I was just sharing this with Claire actually recorded with her this morning and so and people will have already heard this but I wanted to share it with you is it I got to the last episode of the last dance and. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, yeah. Like, and the, the thing, thing that surprised me, Jay, it, it didn't surprise me because it because most of us, at least in America, know something about Phil Jackson's, you know, general background. People, you know, make a big deal about the Zen and the breathing and, and the things that he did with the team, you know, early on. But he has this, you know, pieces of a Native American heritage in his where he grew up, you know. And so he had been exposed to rituals and these types of things. I don't think anybody would guess that after the biggest athlete on the planet won six NBA championships and was about to retire, that, that in that locker room with players like Scottie Pippen and Steve Kerr and, 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 and crazy people like Dennis Rodman, who, by the way, is like my favorite player, that, that Phil Jackson would, would, would get athletes of that you know, social stature to – yep, to – what they did, as you, as you might remember, is they all wrote a letter saying what the Chicago Bulls meant to them. They read it to each other and then burned it in a coffee can and had this ritual closing out of their all this time they spent together. And, and, I, and what I was sharing with Claire, and I want to share with you, JL, and just get a reflection on, I think you've already said it, but on how the players took it and what you observed was if 10 years ago, I, I, you know, we had come home from a deployment 
and 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 one of my troops was like breaking up and going to different jobs and transferring units or whatever, if I had said, hey guys, what we're gonna do is everybody write a letter saying what this what this unit means to you, and we're gonna read it to each other, and then we're gonna burn it in this coffee can, and we're is it's not that guys weren't like uh, wouldn't have done it, but but I think my sense is we weren't quite there where that would have been a thing we could have done together. It's not something that was embedded in the way our teams worked. And, and I have a regret about that. I think one of the most powerful things that teams can do is, is what you described and what Phil Jackson did with his team when they, when they left each other. And whether you're coming together or you're departing, we, I think we can do a better job of being a truly high-performing team if we aren't just working on the tactics of the work. Bigger than the game. Can you just can you can you explain what was the significance of burning the letter at the end of it? So hey, this is a, is a much longer story, but since I've been since I've been out, since I transitioned out of the Navy in the fall of 2011, I had a really challenging 2015. I had been out four years. Transitioning to the private sector was tough. I was physically exhausted. Frankly, I was emotionally exhausted. I had run a company for a while, and I was just tired on a lot of levels. Jail, and I went to this three-day thing with some old, with a, uh, with a guy I'd been working with Vietnam vets for a long time. And I was uncomfortable with the ceremony. And here's the coincidence. He did the same exact ceremony where you, you write things or you bring things and then, and then you burn them. And the way it's been told to me is the significance is, is, is you're about to walk away, going back to the bulls and, and going back to getting out of the military, is when you walk away from a team you've been with for so long, it's very hard to, you drag all this, as, as Preston and I talk about, you drag all this residue from your experience, all these things that have built up over time. And if you don't have some mechanism with your team or with people that you love to close out that experience and almost like send it away in, in ash in a way, um, wow. that's the significance of closing out that, that, you know, the ritual in that way, which is different than coming together. You did, you were doing something different on the front end. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful, eh? And yeah, it's like move on to the next chapter in your life. It's yeah. been an awesome chapter in my life. Now it's time to move on to the next chapter in my life. Yeah, I was just so impressed that Phil Jackson did this. Did that. I would have never I would have never guessed. Um I I wanna uh I got notes by episode here, but I wanna ask you about um you already mentioned a little bit, you guys got beat up by England and then I think Pakistan, I think in episode two it was Pakistan beating you guys and then the test match against India and Virat Kohli, just just a, a monster of a player. Um, but by the time we get to episode four, you, you've um, you guys have sat down again as a team, and Tim Payne is asking you guys in a session, you know, hey Jail, we want a little more positivity. Some guys want some encouragement and these types of things, and um, and and they were telling you. You know, J.O., you've been talking about white noise, white noise, white noise. And I think somebody in that session said, hey, coach, the white noise, it's affecting you now. And you've been telling us it for it not to affect us. What kind of turning points started to happen after the India test match and, and, and when, when the team really started to get up on step and, and really have a chance at, at winning again? Yeah, it was a... A couple of things happened in that period, right? Do you know, um, guys are nice, Alex Ferguson, the yep. great Manchester United boss, right? I had lunch with him like this time last year, oh, about 
August last year, the day before the test, test match in Old Trafford up in Lancashire. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, when, when you lose, the first person you look at is yourself. Ask what you could have done better. Not Because what most people do is they point their finger at everyone else, right? So in that period, it was an interesting time because we had that, we lost the test match and it's, I asked for Tim Payne to get some feedback from the players and he, he gave me some feedback and we're all emotional because we're lost. So, and then there was a guy by the name of Tim Ford who helped transition these uh, Steve Smith and David Warner back in and he's a corporate consultant and he'd acted as a mentor for me six years before. And through all this dealings of working through all the um, conversations and the scars of bringing the guys back, which is going to be in a few months' time, I received the feedback from my from my players, and then something else interesting happened. My wife, my wife who I've known since I was fourteen years old, we're at the breakfast table with my four daughters in Sydney, and she was flying back to Perth okay. that morning. And this is day four of the next test match, and she starts crying at the breakfast table. I go, what are you crying about? She's lived ever. She's lived. She's now fourteen years old, right? She goes, oh, I don't, and I've been in the job now six months. I had some feedback from the players. I had some feedback from my wife. She's going, I don't like what this job's doing to you. You're exhausted. I don't like what people are saying about you and the team. They don't even know you, but they're saying all this stuff. Um, I don't like what it's doing to our family because we haven't seen you for six months uh, and you're working 20 hours a day. I'm going, wow, okay. And that was an important moment that my wife is telling the first the players. And then this guy, Tim Ford, a week later, met me at a coffee shop in Perth and he's been getting all this feedback and he gave me this feedback on the first six months, right? A lot of it was positive, but a lot of it was like, wow, confronting. And at the end of it, I got this big smile on my face. And he's gone, what are you smiling about? I said, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, man, two things. One, my favourite quote in the world, the pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment. The pain of discipline, nothing like the pain of disappointment. And I said to him, this is going to take some discipline, right, to change a few things around of what I, how I'm going to. He goes, yeah, it's going to take I said, yeah, bring it on, baby. This is what I'm all about. So I was given the feedback from my players, then my family, and then the consultant. And you asked me what changed after that. I changed. I had to change. I'd be dead now. I would have had a heart attack by now. I would have been sacked or I would have quit. And I had to make some changes. And they were little changes, but they were important changes. Um, you were running too hard. Yeah, man. It was like, and, and a lot of the last two years, frankly, it's like being on a treadmill running at 16 k's an hour and there's nowhere to get off. Yeah. And that's something we always have to be aware of as leaders, right? You've got to look after your own health. You've got to look after your own well-being. If you don't, it's like you're on this treadmill and you can't get off. And then when you have a loss or you have a bad day, it's like the end of the world, right? And then that comes out in your body language and people get nervous. And so, I, and, and I, I never, my style, my personality, I don't verbalize. I don't get angry very often, but I get very quiet and introverted. Yeah. And people, people see that. So, and I'm aware of that. He, that is one of the things he pointed out. Um, be aware. And I was aware, but when you're going through it, it's hard to click out of it, right? It is. It's very challenging for sure. But the point is, the point is, uh, the leaders have to, if things aren't going right, you, the leaders have to change. And I had to make a few little changes. And then from there, you know, it, it made a big difference. 
Yeah, that's great. I, I was really curious about that part of the story. The, wrote, the, the note that I actually wrote down when I was going back through the documentary, Jay, was you said it was a wake-up call, and I, and I wrote to what, and, and you had mentioned that it was a catalyst to being a much better coach, but you know, you've explained yourself. I thought that was a really interesting part of you know, your development because we don't, we don't get that kind of feedback when, you know, when we get more senior. People oftentimes uh, dance around the head coach a little bit. And it's important that they don't. That's why you need to surround yourself. I also I used to have a saying up on the wall, I never went to Harvard, but I employ <laughs> a lot of people who did. So I want people who can keep me, keep me honest because the great mentors in my life have kept me honest. And as I said before, they're my best friends today. Yeah, I'm sure Ricky Pointer will tell you when he, he doesn't like the looks of something. Man, he is, yeah, he's a legend. I'd never fight him. He's that tough. So <laughs> I, I'll agree with him because I'm not having a fight like a fight. But I'm not fighting him because he's too he's a tough bastard. I love it. I love it. Um, I, a, a little bit of a transition here. As the team, again, moving through the documentary, as the team was, you were selecting some new people for their debuts and, and, and for some new test matches, JL. I love the section where I, well, let me share something I can't stand because I was in, in training enough times that I saw young pe- younger people, at least than me, coming through training. And I, and I didn't like it then and I don't like it now, whether it's in business, athletics, or otherwise. When you hear more senior folks say something like, kids these days, I, I, think, I think it's a leadership failure if the person, you know, if their comment is, you know, something about kids these days. And I thought it was just really interesting to watch the the, the Zampas of your group and um, the Stolinuses of the group and, and, and the Jai Richardson. I think you made the comment about Jai Richardson carrying his PlayStation. But I th- one of the most insightful things you said that was probably off the cuff, but I think it really matters, was talking about the younger players is they love games and, and you don't care what game they're playing. And, and I think as we think about, you know, there's always people in, somewhere in their own life cycle. They're either brand new and debuting for you or they're brand new into a special operations unit or they're brand new into a firehouse or whatever. And um, the fact that you had young people co- coming in who were just in love with competition, which is what we heard from Jordan in The Last Dance, right? He's, he's like, I'm just in love with competition. Basketball is one thing, but I just love competing. And I just wanted you to share some reflections on those younger guys coming into the team. Well, it's two things like Michael Jordan. Yeah, I love playing blackjack because I, I don't love ga- I mean, gambling. The people say, oh, you just gamble. No, no, I love playing because it's a competition. I love playing golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah I have a bet on it. I love playing because I want to beat the, the guy. And that's, you know, I often say when sometimes we play touch football, touch rugby as a warm up, right? Or in practice, just to right. make it. And I, I see a lot about our players by how they play touch football or how they play golf together or how they play cards together. I see a lot because I see the guys who love the game and love competing, right? Um, but I think one thing that's helped me as a, as a coach is that one, I had a long career playing. So therefore I realised how nothing, not kids these days, we're the same. We're yeah. exactly the same. We're all the same. We all wanted the bootsy, we wanted the fancy sunglasses and the fancy shoes and the, you know, make a quid and that. Well, no, it's no different. It's no different. Yeah. It's no different. But what the, my point of that is, having lived through that, I can empathise with one how hard the game is, one how hard life is, because it's a professional sport. It's tough, man. Like, yeah. 
And I lived through that. So I can empathize with all these kids. And the other thing is that's helped me as a coach is I'm a parent. I'm a dad. And that's really helped me as a coach. And the reason I say that is because what I've come to recognize, if I've got four daughters, Coleman, and they're all different. They all come from the same place. They're all the same upbringing. And they're all so different. So if my daughters, who live in the same house and come from the same place, are different, all my players are going to be different. So I treat them all different. And that takes time, and that's how you build relations. You've got to work out what makes different people tick and respect. And I think it's a mistake a lot of leaders make, is they want everyone to be the same. That's not how life works. Everyone's not the same. Everyone's different. So you've got to have your set of values, and you've got expectations and standards of training and standards of behaviours, of course, but they all do that differently. And if they different personalities, different characters, all that sort of stuff. So everyone's different and we've got to recognize that as leaders. How was, uh, I, I think uh, for some reason, the other guy's name is, is escaping me, but I thought, I think it was Garner. When Smithy and Garner came back, Steve Smith, Warner, Warner and Warner. Yeah. When he came, what, what were things, um, how was the team when they came back jail? When, it, you know, they obviously are going to play right away. As soon as, I mean, they're, they're superstar players. Um, it, at least in the documentary, it didn't seem that bringing those guys back after a year or whatever their ban was, the documentary didn't make it seem like it was that big of a deal, but did the team have to transition again when they came back? Well, this is, see, what happens to the documentary? You see, we had the cameraman with us every day for 18 months. Which I think is crazy, but it made a great documentary. It was, it was one cameraman who became part of our group. He was a, he's a stand-up comic. So he said, told us the joke of the day every day for 18 months. I, I can't believe that. It. But anyway, what I was going to say is that what people didn't see, as often happens in life, they see the surface. Oh, these guys come back. and But the work that went into bringing these guys back, the conversations through this Tim Ford and the breaking down the scar tissue of what had happened, because a lot had happened to get to that point, right? So, so much work went into it. And because oh. the hard work went into it behind the scenes, then they transitioned seamlessly back. And talk, we're talking about Michael Jordan and Floyd Mayweather coming back into the team. Right. Two all-time greats. So from a cricket, from the from actual skill point of view, bringing them back in was like, wow, amazing. You've got Michael Jordan and Floyd Mayweather coming back into your team. So this is awesome. But all the hard work of all the all the any um, residual issues we'd been, had all been were, were being resolved for nine months leading up to that. And that took yep. an outside source to help us with that. And those were internal conversations just inside the locker room. Yeah. Yeah. Honest conversations that were going, but they weren't with us, remember. So we had this guy, uh, Tim Ford, who was traveling around Australia and having these conversations with them and the, other other groups of players and small groups and big groups and to make sure when they came back any any scars any residual issues had been dealt with before we walked onto the cricket field and that's yeah. important and the results spoke for themselves i mean you know the team obviously just got better and better and better and um a couple of personalities, like I said, I, I just I, I loved I loved I, I don't know these guys, but I, I thought Kawaja was an interesting character. Um, Nathan Lyon, I, I mean, he's, I don't, again, I don't know him, but he's my favorite guy suddenly. And, uh, and I had a lot of, I, I could identify with Finchie. I mean, he clearly had, 
you know, his ups and downs, and it was just impressive how he handled himself. Yeah, and they're like my kid. They're like my sons. That's what yeah. it turns out to be. You know, they turn out to be like your sons. So I love them all, and and the ones who, you know, even the ones you let go, you still love them. But there's usually a reason you let them go. They're not they're not living the behaviors or the values of the group, and some they're they're tough calls you got to make. Yeah, a couple of uh, quick closing items, JL. Some one. Not personal question, but personal, I know, to your house because you mentioned it a, a few weeks ago, and then I want to give you a chance to mention anything you think the MCT community should know that I haven't already asked. Tell us about your quote room. Oh, yeah. Well, how many quotes are in there? How long have you been writing stuff on the walls? So we built this new house 20 years ago. Okay. okay. So 20 years, right? And I used to have, in, it used to be an old house. We we're near the beach, an old house. And I used to have a little tin shed. I don't know if you have those in America, but a tin yeah. shed, right? And I love all the Rocky movies. When I was growing up, I wanted to be, I wanted to be Rocky Balboa, right? So I used to, have the, <laughs> used to have my garage with my punching bags. And I used to train tough. Like, I used to love training. And I, to this day, like, down in my garage, I've got a heavy bag, a floor-to-ceiling ball, a, um, a Boxmaster machine. I've got all my mitts. I've got... Uh, big frame stuff of Muhammad Ali. Oh, nice. I love my boxing. So I had this little tin shed, right? And I used to have this little plastic wall. Okay. I saw this uh, wall and I used to just write little quotes just to remind me. And With a Sharpie, with a marker. Yeah, yeah, with a, um, with a Sharpie. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. one of these things. Right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so when I build this new house, at the back we've got this long block and I, I built a room like um, – like a beautiful room, five by five meters. Okay. And that was my gym. That was like a posh gym. That like Rocky Balboa when he become a yeah. you know Rocky Four shit. Like it wasn't like in the in the meat house. This is like a posh. This is like a really nice room. So I had my like my gym equipment up there, and I used to go up there. Anyway, I got my sharpie out, and above the above the um, the door, like we're talking about, I don't know, maybe a meter long. I wrote in, and then I bold a big bold. The pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment, right? And my wife walks in. She goes, what the? She's going crazy. What are you doing? Is that brand new house? What are you doing? You're crazy. I go, no, baby, this is my room. You're, that's your house? This is my this room. This is my room. This is my room, baby. Anyway, so then over the years, so then I started writing quotes and scriptures and anything I read in books or sometimes people come over or, you know, my kids have written some stuff on the wall and yeah. you know, I write my goals up there. And now this room, now it's 15-metre room over the 20 years. We've built it out. So then it was my gym and my office. Now my daughter lives up there, right? Oh. It's, an awesome, it's an awesome space, but it's got literally got – it would have one day when I finish coaching, I will definitely – when my daughter moves out, I'm going to put a desk in the middle of it and I'm going to write a book about this quote because oh. every, every every quote every scripture has a story of my life so oh man this is an amazing so you walk in there it's like wow how cool is this room and it's all in permanent marker and sharpie and there's oh, it, oh, it's just it's like the best wallpaper you've ever seen in your life it's yeah. an awesome room but you don't work in there anymore right now jail now at the moment my daughter who lives in london three years she comes out she lives up there so man i've still got so i've still got a treadmill and some a little bit of gym equipment that's all down in my garage now but one day one day i'll live up it's like i'm in my new study now got beautiful bookshelves all my 
great books everywhere. I'm not allowed to write on the walls in this room. <laughs> my, my wife would divorce me. She'd kill me. But up in that room, uh, and I still do. I say, if I hear a new quote, I still walk up and add quotes to the wall every day yeah, or whenever, yeah, yeah, whenever I feel yeah. like it. Yeah. This is a very tactical question, Dale, but I'm curious. When you, Let's say you're on the road for two months, three months, four months. Do you, you put those quotes in a little notebook that you carry like all the time? I noticed in the documentary you had that little black notebook you carried everywhere. Is that where all your quotes go? Yeah, I've got my little moleskin. I've got, I've got, seriously, I've got, mate, I've got so many of these in my cupboards. I write a lot. Um, I've got it in my, I actually got it in my notes, my notes section in my phone. Okay. You know what I mean? You know how on on my Apple phone you can put the notes in and they're they're all, they're all through that. So, um, but a lot of them now are tattered into my mind and that helped me tell stories as a coach. You know, as I said, a lot of great leadership is about storytelling bringing bringing lessons to life so um and that's where those things help me absolutely this is this is the last part jay i'll let you get let you get back to your day at the end we typically do a thing called on monday i think i think i know your answers but you can change them i'll tee it up though and the idea of on monday is if because we talked about you taking over a new team as if uh, i typically ask the, the guest if i drop the person whoever i'm interviewing if i drop you into a new team tomorrow and there's only one, two, three, you know, certainly no more than four skills that are absolutely mandatory for a great team, a great team leader. And what you talked about a couple of weeks ago was what you guys did out on the Western Front with the, the hero, where you learned about Aussie history and, and what, you know, person learned about themselves. You talked about leading the ship and you talked about looking after your health, you know, um, personally. But we we just want to make sure we leave the team, the, the, the listeners with some, some, t- some real takeaways like that they can literally use on Monday. You know, what would JL's recommendations to a, a team leader be? Uh, number one, you must know what you stand for. You must know what your vision is, what gets you out of bed every day. You must know what you stand for and what you don't compromise on. So that's number one. Number two, as I spoke about the other day, Coleman, is – this has been really powerful for me is that the origin of the word leadership comes from leading the ship. So when you're a leader, you lead the ship. So the only time the captain of the ship needs to come out is when in a couple of instances, one, when the iceberg comes stormy waters, think about the Titanic. So the iceberg. And if you don't, if you don't, not ready for, and we can think about coronavirus now. That's the iceberg, right? Yep. Shit, this is like big thing, and it can sink you unless you're a skilled captain. The second time the, the captain should come out is when it's stormy waters, and you've got to use your skill and expertise as a captain to guide the ship from letting it capsize because that's where. You, and the third time the captain of the ship comes out is when you've got mutiny on deck <laughs> and you've got trouble with the people, and that happens in a lot of businesses, right? So. So you got to use your skill, your the human um, relationship. You got a human management, man management skills. The rest of the time, the captain should sit up, sit up on the wheel and just guide his ship to the next destination and let his people do their work. Don't do the work for them, and that's leadership. Lead the ship. So that's important. Um, know what you stand for. Lead the ship, and also have have I'd say make sure you have good routines. Make good, in good routines in your life so that you stay healthy and you stay happy and you stay balanced. So 
And those routines can have to do with your family, could have to do with yourself. Um, whatever's important to keep you healthy and, and well mentally and physically, it's very important because as soon as the, the captain of the ship starts getting, getting unwell, guess what? When the iceberg comes or the stormy waters come or the mutiny on deck, you can't help it anyway because you're not at your best. What is there a game or a test match this year, Jay, in 2020 that you're going to be able to play that we should watch on TV? Which one? In well, there's a lot of moving parts, but again, yeah. India, hopefully, because it's worth about 300 million dollars to Cricket Australia. When India come to Australia, we've got four test matches. And when is that? That will be in uh, probably. Early December. Okay. Australia versus India in a test match. In Australia. That's the number one and the number two. We're number one. They've been number one ranked team in the world for the last four years. We've just taken over from number one. Man, and they've got this guy, Virat Kohli. He is, whoa, he's the, probably the best player I've ever seen. And leader. Talk about strong leader. Man, this guy is a, not only the best batsman in the world, but he's also a strong leader. Boy, whoa. So him, Floyd Mayweather versus Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Is it so early December? So weight divisions, but there's going to be a big contest, big contest. At the, uh, at the Melbourne Cricket Grounds. Well, no, no. Well, that's always a big – Melbourne Cricket Ground is Boxing Day Test Match, which is big Boxing Day Test. So on the 26th of December, that'll be the third test of the summer. Okay. So we had two tests before that, but that's a bit Boxing Day. Oh, you guys do lots of stuff on Boxing Day, but if you get the the test match with Australia and India on Boxing Day, man, oh. that's a bit that's a a whole of Australia. So we get well, it depends what happens with the coronavirus, but we can get up to ninety thousand people come to that test match on Boxing Day, and Australia versus India, man, bring it on, baby! <laughs> when you when you have the national anthem before the before the game. You know you're alive. You yeah. know you're alive. That's so good. Uh, well, uh, a, a very, very sincere for, from the whole uh, MCT community, Jail. And you, as I've said before, you always have an invite to interact with us anytime you want. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Uh, I loved having you. I was really looking forward to this. So thanks. Pleasure, mate. Thanks so much. Absolutely. I think everyone could obviously see Justin's excitement. I stopped short of saying passion, but purpose and excitement around uh, test cricket and cricket in general and his teammates and his mentors and his brothers and what the country means to him and what just interacting with his players and the own people, you know, his own people in his, in his life, what that means to him is obviously much more than just cricket. I just really enjoyed the conversation and want to publicly thank Coach Justin Langer again for coming on to the team cast and having that conversation with me. Uh, as always, stay tuned for a couple of uh, future casts coming up are with Sean Holes, Director of Performance and Sports Science at the Cleveland Browns, formerly of the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, and also a team cast coming up with Harry Moffitt, our director of Mission Critical Team Institute in Australia and New Zealand on a topic I've intentionally avoided, but I figured um, it was time to have a conversation about leadership in general 
and I thought Harry was the right person to speak on this topic. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the TeamCast. Everyone have a great week. Thank you.